As a youth, I visited the 1964 World's Fair in New York City. One of my favorite stops was the LDS Church Pavilion, with its impressive replica of the Salt Lake Temple spires. There, for the first time, I saw the film Man's Search for Happiness. The movie's depiction of the plan of salvation, narrated by Elder Richard L. Evans, had a significant impact on many visitors, including me. Among other things, Elder Evans said, Life offers you two precious gifts. One is time. The other, freedom of choice, the freedom to buy with your time what you will. You're free to exchange your allotment of time for thrills. You may trade it for base desires. You may invest it in greed. Yours is the freedom to choose. But these are no bargains, for in them you find no lasting satisfaction. Every day, he continued, every hour, every minute of your span of mortal years must sometime be accounted for. And it is in this life that you walk by faith and prove yourself able to choose good over evil, right over wrong, enduring happiness over mere amusement. And your eternal reward will be according to your choosing. A prophet of God has said, Men are that they might have joy, a joy that includes a fullness of life, a life dedicated to service, to love and harmony in the home in the fruits of honest toil, an acceptance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of its requirements and commandments. Only in these, Elder Evans said, will you find true happiness, the happiness which doesn't fade with the lights and the music and the crowds. These statements express the reality that our life on earth is a stewardship of time and choices granted by our Creator. The word stewardship calls to mind the Lord's law of consecration, which has an economic role, but more than that, is an application of celestial law to life here and now. To consecrate is to set apart or dedicate something as sacred, devoted to holy purposes. True success in this life comes in consecrating our lives, that is, our time and choices, to God's purposes. In so doing, we permit Him to raise us to our highest destiny. I would like to consider with you five of the elements of a consecrated life—purity, work, respect for one's physical body, service, and integrity. As the Savior demonstrated, the consecrated life is a pure life. While Jesus is the only one to have led a sinless life, those who come unto Him and take His yoke upon them have claim on His grace, which will make them as He is, guiltless and spotless. With deep love, the Lord encourages us in these words, Repent, all ye ends of the earth, and come unto Me, and be baptized in My name, that ye may be sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost that ye may stand spotless before me at the last day. Consecration, therefore, means repentance. Stubbornness, rebellion, and rationalization must be abandoned, and in their place, submission, a desire for correction, and acceptance of all that the Lord may require. 
This is what King Benjamin called putting off the natural man, yielding to the enticings of the Holy Spirit, and becoming a saint through the Atonement of Christ the Lord. Such a one is promised the enduring presence of the Holy Spirit, a promise remembered and renewed each time a repentant soul partakes of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Elder B. H. Roberts once expressed the process in these words, The man who so walks in the light and wisdom and power of God will at the last, by the very force of association, make the light and wisdom and power of God his own, weaving those bright rays into a chain divine, linking himself forever to God and God to him. This is the sum of Messiah's mystic words, Thou Father in me, and I in thee. Beyond this, human greatness cannot achieve. A consecrated life is a life of labor. Beginning early in his life, Jesus was about his Father's business. God himself is glorified by his work of bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of his children. We naturally desire to participate with him in his work, and in so doing, we ought to recognize that all honest work is the work of God. In the words of Thomas Carlyle, all true work is sacred. In all true work, were it but true hand labor, there is something of divineness. Labor, wide as the earth, has its summit in heaven. God has designed this mortal existence to require nearly constant exertion. I recall the Prophet Joseph Smith's simple statement, By continuous labor we were enabled to get a comfortable maintenance. By work we sustain and enrich life. It enables us to survive the disappointments and tragedies of the mortal experience. Hard-earned achievement brings a sense of self-worth. Work builds and refines character creates beauty, and is the instrument of our service to one another and to God. A consecrated life is filled with work, sometimes repetitive, sometimes menial, sometimes unappreciated, but always work that improves, orders, sustains, lifts, ministers, aspires. Having spoken in praise of labor, I must also add a kind word for leisure. Just as honest toil gives rest its sweetness, wholesome recreation is the friend and steadying companion of work. Music, literature, art, dance, drama, athletics, all can provide entertainment to enrich one's life and further consecrate it. At the same time, it hardly needs to be said that much of what passes for entertainment today is coarse degrading, violent, mind-numbing, and time-wasting. I'm just getting started. <laughs> Ironically, it sometimes takes hard work to find wholesome leisure. When entertainment turns from virtue to vice, it becomes a destroyer of the consecrated life. Wherefore, take heed that ye do not judge that which is evil to be of God. A consecrated life respects the incomparable gift of one's physical body, a divine creation in the very image of God. 
A central purpose of the mortal experience is that each spirit should receive such a body and learn to exercise moral agency in a tabernacle of flesh. A physical body is also essential for exaltation, which comes only in the perfect combination of the physical and the spiritual, as we see in our beloved resurrected Lord. In this fallen world, some lives will be painfully brief, some bodies will be malformed, broken, or barely adequate to maintain life. Yet life will be long enough for each spirit, and each body will qualify for resurrection. Those who believe that our bodies are nothing more than the result of evolutionary chance will feel no accountability to God or anyone else for what they do with or to their body. We who have a witness of the broader reality of pre-mortal, mortal, and post-mortal eternity, however, must acknowledge that we have a duty to God with respect to this crowning achievement of His physical creation. In Paul's words, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Acknowledging these truths in the direction of President Thomas S. Monson in last April's General Conference, we would certainly not deface our body as with tattoos or debilitate it as with drugs or defile it as with fornication, adultery, or immodesty. As the instrument of our spirit, it is vital that we care for this body as best we can. We should consecrate its powers to serve and further the work of Christ. Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Jesus demonstrated that a consecrated life is a life of service. Hours before his, the agony of His Atonement began, the Lord humbly washed His disciples' feet, saying to them, If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Those who quietly and thoughtfully go about doing good offer a model of consecration. No one in our time more perfectly incorporates this trait into daily life than President Thomas S. Monson. He has cultivated a listening ear that can discern even the faintest whisper of the Spirit, signaling the need of someone he can reach and help. Often it is in simple acts that confirm divine love and awareness, but always, always, Thomas Monson responds. I find in the life of my grandfather and grandmother, Alexander DeWitt and Louise Vickery Christofferson, an instance of such consecration. Grandpa was a strong man and was good at shearing sheep in the days before electric clippers. He got good enough, he said, that in one day I sheared 287 sheep and could have sheared over 300, but we ran out of sheep. <laughs> During 1919, he sheared over 12,000 sheep. 
earning some $2,000. The money would have substantially expanded his farm and upgraded his home, but a call to serve in the Southern States Mission came from the Brethren, and with Louise's full support, he accepted. He left his wife, then pregnant with their first son, my father, and their three daughters with the sheep-shearing money. Upon his joyous return two years later, he observed, Our savings had lasted us throughout the two years, and we had $29 left. A consecrated life is a life of integrity. We see it in the husband and wife who honor marital vows with complete fidelity. We see it in the father and mother whose demonstrated first priority is to nourish their marriage and ensure the physical and spiritual welfare of their children. We see it in those who are honest. Years ago, I became acquainted with two families in the process of dissolving a jointly owned commercial enterprise. The principals, two men who were friends and members of the same Christian congregation, had formed the company years earlier. They had a generally congenial relationship as business partners, but as they grew older and the next generation began to take part in the business, conflicts emerged. Finally, all parties decided it would be best to divide up the assets and go their separate ways. One of the two original partners devised a stratagem with his lawyers to secure for himself a significant financial advantage in the dissolution at the expense of the other partner and his sons. In a meeting of the parties, one of the sons complained about this unfair treatment and appealed to the honor and Christian beliefs of the first partner. You know this is not right, he said. How could you take advantage of someone this way, especially a brother in the same church? The first partner's lawyer retorted, Oh, grow up. How can you be so naive? Integrity is not naivete. What is naive is to suppose that we are not accountable to God. The Savior declared, My Father sent me that I might be lifted up upon the cross, that as I have been lifted up by men, even so should men be lifted up by the Father to stand before me to be judged of their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. One who lives a consecrated life does not seek to take advantage of another, but if anything will turn the other cheek, and if required to deliver his coat, will give his cloak also. The Savior's sternest rebukes were to hypocrites. Hypocrisy is terribly destructive, not only to the hypocrite, but to those who observe or know of his conduct, especially children. It is faith-destroying. Whereas honor is the rich soil in which the seed of faith thrives. A consecrated life is a beautiful thing. Its strength and serenity are as a very fruitful tree which is planted in a goodly land by a pure stream that yieldeth much precious fruit. Of particular significance is the influence of a consecrated man or woman upon others, especially those closest and dearest. The consecration of many who have gone before us and others who live among us has helped lay the foundation for our happiness. In like manner, future generations will take courage from your consecrated life, acknowledging their debt to you for the possession of all that truly matters. 
May we consecrate ourselves as sons and daughters of God, that when He shall appear we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is, that we may have this hope, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We live in one of the greatest dispensations of all times, a time former prophets look forward to, prophesied of, and I believe yearned for. However, with all the heavenly blessings bestowed upon us, Satan, ever so real, is ever so active, and conflicting messages are continually bombarding all of us. The angel Moroni warned the young prophet Joseph Smith that his name would be known for good and evil throughout the world. And never has the fulfillment of a prophecy been more evident. The prophet gave his life for his testimony, and the attacks continue today against the Church and even the Savior himself. The reality of the Savior, His atoning sacrifice, and its universal application for all of us is challenged and often dismissed as a myth or a baseless hope by a weak and uneducated mind. Furthermore, the reality of the restoration of the gospel in these latter days continue to be challenged. The continual bombardment of such messages may cause confusion, doubt, and pessimism, each attacking the fundamental truths we believe in, our faith in God, and our hope in the future. This might be the reality of the world, but we can still choose how we react to it. When our sacred doctrine and beliefs are challenged, this is our opportunity to become acquainted with God in a most private and intimate manner. This is our opportunity to choose. Because of the conflicts and challenges we face in today's world, I wish to suggest a single choice—a choice of peace, protection, and a choice that is appropriate for all. That choice is faith. Be aware that faith is not a free gift given without thought, desire, or effort. It does not come as the dew falls from heaven. The Savior said, Come unto me, and knock, and it shall be given you. These are action verbs. Come, knock. They are choices. So I say, choose faith. Choose faith over doubt. Choose faith over fear. Choose faith over the unknown and the unseen. And choose faith over pessimism. Alma's classic discussion on faith, as recorded in the 32nd chapter of Alma in the Book of Mormon, is a series of choices to ensure the development and the preservation of our faith. Alma gave us a directive to choose. His were words of action initiated by choosing. He used the words awake, arouse, experiment, exercise, desire, work, and plant. And then Alma explained that if we make these choices and do not cast the seed out by unbelief, then, and I quote, it will begin to swell within your breasts. Yes, faith is a choice, and it must be sought after and developed. Thus, we are responsible for our own faith. We are also responsible for our lack of faith. The choice is yours. There is much that I do not know. 
I do not know the details of the organization of matter into this beautiful world we live in. I do not understand the intricacies of the Atonement, how the Savior's sacrifice can cleanse all repentant people, or how the Savior could suffer the pain of all men. I do not know where the city of Zarahemla was, as referred to the Book of Mormon. I do not know why my beliefs sometimes conflict with assumed secular or scientific knowledge. Perhaps these are matters our Father in Heaven described as the mysteries of Heaven that will be revealed at a later date. But while I don't know everything, I know the important. I know the plain and simple gospel truths that lead to salvation and exaltation. I know that the Savior did suffer the pain of all men, and that all repentant men and people can be cleansed from sin. And what I don't know or I don't completely understand, with the powerful aid of my faith, I bridge the gap and move on, partaking of the promises and blessings of the gospel. And then, as Alma teaches, our faith brings us to a perfect knowledge. Moving forward into the unknown, armed only with hope and desire, is evidence of our faith and our devotion to the Lord. And so following Alma's formula, let us choose. Let us choose faith. If confusion and hopelessness weigh on your mind, choose to awake and arouse your faculties. Humbly approaching the Lord with a broken heart and a contrite spirit is the pathway to truth and the Lord's way of light, knowledge, and peace. If your testimony is immature, untested, and insecure, choose to exercise even a particle of faith. Choose to experiment upon His word. The Savior explained, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. When logic, reason, or personal intellect come into conflict with the sacred teachings and doctrine, or conflicting messages assault your beliefs as the fiery darts described by the Apostle Paul, choose not to cast a seed out of your heart by unbelief. Remember, we receive not a witness until after the trial of our faith. If your faith is proven and is proven and mature, choose to nurture it with great care. As strong as our faith is, with all the mixed messages attacking it, it can also be very fragile. It needs constant nourishment through continued scripture study, prayer, and the application of His Word. When the disciples asked Jesus why they could not cast a devil out, as they had just witnessed the Savior do, Jesus answered, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and that shall be removed. I have never witnessed the removal of an actual mountain, but because of faith I have seen a mountain of doubt and despair removed and replaced with optimism and hope. Because of faith, I have personally witnessed a mountain of sin replaced with repentance and forgiveness. And because of faith, I have personally witnessed a mountain of pain replaced with peace, hope, and gratitude. Yes, I have seen mountains removed. Because of my faith, I have activated the power of the priesthood that I hold 
and have been able to partake of the sweetness of the gospel and have embraced the saving ordinances. Because of my faith, I have worked through the struggles and difficulties in life with peace and assurance. Because of my faith, I have been able to turn questions and even doubts into assurances and understanding. Because of my faith, I approach the unknown, unseen, and unexplained with unquestioning assurance. And because of my faith, even in the seemingly worst of times, I recognize with peace and gratitude that in reality it is the best of times. And when we choose faith and then nurture that faith to a perfect knowledge of the things of the Lord, then we use the words, I testify and I know. I have personally planted the seed in my own heart, and throughout my life I have attempted to nurture that seed to a perfect knowledge. And today, as I stand behind this pulpit, I testify that Jesus is the Christ, the Redeemer of the world. I further testify that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God and the living instrument the Lord used to bring back to the earth the complete and true gospel of Jesus Christ. I testify that President Thomas S. Monson is the Lord's prophet today. Likewise, the choice of faith is yours, it is mine. Let us choose faith. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. I celebrated a birthday last month. As a birthday present, my wife Mary gave me a CD containing songs of hope and faith performed by a famous British singer named Vera Lynn who inspired her listeners during the dark days of the Second World War. There is a little history as to why my wife would give me this gift. The bombing of London in September 1940 commenced the day before I was born. My mother, listening to the account of the London Blitz on the radio in her hospital room, decided to name me after the radio announcer, whose first name was Quentin. The vocalist Vera Lynn is now 93 years old. Last year, some of her wartime songs were re-released and immediately climbed to the top of the music charts in Britain. Those of you who are a little older will remember some of the songs like The White Cliffs of Dover. One song titled When the Lights Go On Again All Over the World deeply touched me. The song brought two thoughts to my mind. First, the prophetic words by a British statesman, The lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our time. And second, the bombing raids conducted over British cities like London. To make it harder for the attacking bombers to find a target, blackouts were instituted, lights were turned out, and windows were draped. The song reflected an optimistic hope that freedom and light would be restored. For those of us who understand the role of the Savior and the light of Christ in the ongoing conflict between good and evil, the analogy between that war and the moral conflict today is clear. It is by the light of Christ that all mankind may know good from evil. Freedom and light have never been easy to attain or maintain. Since the war in heaven, the forces of evil have used every means possible 
to destroy agency and extinguish light. The assault on moral principles and religious freedom has never been stronger. As Latter-day Saints, we need to do our best to preserve light and protect our families and communities from this assault on morality and religious freedom. An ever-present danger to the family is the onslaught of evil forces that seem to come from every direction. While our primary effort must be to seek light and truth, we would be wise to black out from our homes the lethal bombs that destroy spiritual development and growth. Pornography in particular is a weapon of mass moral destruction. Its impact is at the forefront in eroding moral values. Some TV programs and Internet sites are equally lethal. These evil forces remove light and hope from the world. The level of decadence is accelerating. If we do not black out evil from our homes and lives, do not be surprised if devastating moral explosions shatter the peace, which is the reward for righteous living. Our responsibility is to be in the world but not of the world. In addition, we need to greatly increase religious observance in the home. Weekly family home evening, daily family prayer, and scripture study are essential. We need to introduce into our homes content that is virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy. If we make of our homes holy places that shelter us from evil, we will be protected from the adverse consequences that the scriptures have foretold. In addition to protecting our own families, we should be a source of light in protecting our communities. The Savior said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Our day has been described as a time of plenty and an age of doubt. Basic belief in the power and authority of God is not only questioned but also denigrated. How, under these circumstances, can we promote values in a way that will resonate with the non-believers and the apathetic and help abate the spiraling descent into violence and evil? This question is of monumental importance. Think of the Prophet Mormon and his anguish when he declared, How could ye have rejected that Jesus who stood with open arms to receive you? Mormon's anguish was justified, and his son Moroni was left to describe the sad tale of the destruction of his people. My personal experience of living and interacting with people all over the world has caused me to be optimistic. I believe that light and truth will be preserved in our time. In all nations, there are large numbers who worship God and feel accountable to Him for their conduct. Some observers believe there is actually a global revival of faith. As Church leaders, we have met with other leaders of other faiths and have found that there is a common moral foundation that transcends theological differences and unites us in our aspirations for a better society. We also find the majority of people are still respectful of basic moral values. But make no mistake, there are also people who are determined to destroy both faith and reject any religious influence in society. Other evil people exploit, manipulate, and tear down society with drugs, pornography, sexual exploitation, human, human trafficking, robbery, and dishonest business practices. 
The power and influence of these people is very large, even if they are relatively small in number. There has always been an ongoing battle between people of faith and those who would purge religion and God from public life. Many opinion leaders today reject a moral view of the world based on Judeo-Christian values. In their view, there is no objective moral order. They believe no preference should be given to moral goals. Still, the majority of people aspire to be good and honorable. The light of Christ, which is distinct from the Holy Ghost, informs their conscience. We know from the scriptures that the light of Christ is the Spirit which giveth light to every man that cometh into the world. This light is given for the sake of the whole world. President Boyd K. Packer has taught that this is a source of inspiration which each of us possesses in common with all other members of the human family. This is why many will accept moral values even when founded on religious convictions which they do not personally support. As we read in Mosiah in the Book of Mormon, it is not common that the voice of the people desire anything contrary to that which is right. But it is common for the lesser part of the people to desire that which is not right. Mosiah then warns, if the time comes that the voice of the people doth choose iniquity, then is the time that the judgments of God will come. In our increasingly unrighteous world, it is essential that values based on religious belief be part of the public discourse. Moral positions informed by a religious conscience must be accorded equal access to the public square. Under the constitutions of most countries, a religious conscience may not be given preference, but neither should it be disregarded. Religious faith is a store of light, knowledge, and wisdom and benefits society in a dramatic way when adherents engage in moral conduct because they feel accountable to God. Two religious principles will illustrate this point. The thirteenth article of faith begins, We believe in being honest. Honesty is a principle founded in religious belief and is one of God's basic laws. Many years ago, when I was practicing law in California, a friend and client who is not a member of our faith came in to see me and with great enthusiasm showed me a letter he had received from one of the LDS bishops of a nearby ward. The bishop wrote that a member of his congregation, a former employee of my client, had taken materials from my client's worksite and had rationalized that they were surplus. But after becoming a committed Latter-day Saint and attempting to follow Jesus Christ, this employee recognized that what he had done was dishonest. Enclosed in the letter was a sum of money to cover not only the cost of the materials but also interest. My client was impressed that the Church, through lay leadership, would assist this man in his effort to be reconciled to God. Think about the light and truth that the shared value of honesty has in the Judeo-Christian world. Think about the impact on society if youth didn't cheat in school, adults were honest in the workplace, and were faithful to their marriage vows. For us, the concept of basic honesty is grounded in the life and teachings of the Savior. Honesty is also a value attribute in many other faiths and in historic literature. The poet Robert Burns said, An honest man's the noblest work of God. In almost every instance, people of faith feel accountable to God for being honest. This was the reason the man in California was repenting from his earlier act of dishonesty. 
In a commencement address last year, Clayton Christensen, a Harvard professor and church leader, shared the true account of a professional colleague from another country who had studied democracy. This friend was surprised at how critically important religion is to democracy. He pointed out that in societies where the citizens are taught from a young age to feel accountable to God for honesty and integrity, they will abide by rules and practices that, while unenforceable, promote democratic ideals. In societies where this is not true, there cannot be enough policemen to enforce honest behavior. Clearly, moral values with respect to honesty can play a significant role in establishing light and truth and improving society and should be valued by those who do not have faith. A second example of religious faith benefits society and contributes to light contributes light to the world is the role of religion in treating all of God's children as brothers and sisters. Many faith-based institutions in the last two centuries have been at the forefront in reaching out and rescuing those subject to cruel circumstances because they believe that all men are made in the image and likeness of God. William Wilberforce, the great British statesman who was instrumental in outlawing the slave trade in Great Britain, is an excellent example. Amazing Grace, the touching hymn, and the inspiring movie of the same name captured the feeling of the early 1800s and described the account of his heroic effort. Wilberforce's untiring efforts were among the first steps in eliminating this terrible, oppressive, cruel, and venal practice. As part of that effort, he, together with other leaders, set out to reform public morality. He believed that education and government had to be morally based. His vision of moral and spiritual enrichment was what he lived for, whether in defending the institution of marriage, attacking the practices of the slave trade, or emphatically defending the Sabbath day. With great energy, he helped mobilize the country's moral and social leaders in a nationwide struggle against vice. In our early Church history, the vast majority of our members were opposed to slavery. This was a significant reason, along with our religious beliefs, for the hostility and mob violence they experienced, culminating in the extermination order issued by Governor Boggs in Missouri in 1833. In 1833, Joseph Smith received a revelation stating, It is not right that any man should be in bondage one to another. Our commitment to freedom of religion and treating all people as sons and daughters of God is central to our doctrine. These are just two examples of how faith-based values undergird principles that greatly bless society. There are many more. We should both participate ourselves and support people of character and integrity to help reestablish moral values that will bless the entire community. Let me be clear that all the voices need to be heard in the public square. Neither religious nor secular voices should be silenced. Furthermore, we should not expect that because some of our views emanate from religious principles, they will automatically be accepted or given preferential status. But it is also clear such views and values are entitled to be reviewed on their merits. The moral foundation of our doctrine can be a beacon light to the world and can be a unifying force for both morality and faith in Jesus Christ. We need to protect our families and be at the forefront together with all people of goodwill in doing everything we can to preserve light, hope, and morality in our communities. If we both live and proclaim these principles, we will be following Jesus Christ, who is the true light of the world. 
We can be a force for righteousness in preparing for the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We look forward to that beautiful day when free hearts will sing, when the lights go on again all over the world. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. Recently, I received a letter from a friend of over 50 years who is not a member of the Church. I had sent him some gospel-related reading to which he responded. Initially, it was hard for me to follow the meaning of the typical Mormon jargon, such as agency. Possibly a short vocabulary page would be helpful. I was surprised he did not understand what we mean by the word agency. I went to an online dictionary. Of the ten definitions and usage of the word agency, none expressed the idea of making choices to act. We teach that agency is the ability and privilege God gives us to choose and to act for ourselves and not to be acted upon. Agency is the act with accountability and responsibility for our actions. Our agency is essential to the plan of salvation. With it, we are free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator of all men, or to choose captivity and death according to the captivity and power of the devil. The words of a familiar hymn teach us this principle very clearly. Know this, that every soul is free to choose his life and what he'll be. For this eternal truth is given, that God will force no man to heaven. To answer my friend's questions and the questions of good men and women everywhere, let me share with you more of what we know about this meaning of agency. Before we came to this earth, Heavenly Father presented his plan of salvation, a plan to come to earth to receive a body, choose to act between good and evil, and progress to become like Him and live with Him forever. Our agency, our ability to choose and act for ourselves, was an essential element of this plan. Without agency, we would be unable to make right choices and progress. Yet with agency, we could make wrong choices, commit sin, and lose the opportunity to be with Heavenly Father again. For this reason, a Savior would be provided to suffer for our sins and to redeem us if we would repent. By His infinite Atonement, He brought about the plan of mercy to appease the demands of justice. After Heavenly Father presented His plan, Lucifer stepped forward, saying, Send me, and I will redeem all mankind. Not even one soul shall be lost. Wherefore, give me thine honor. This plan was rejected by Father. It, was it would have denied us our agency. Indeed, it was a plan of rebellion. Then Jesus, Heavenly Father's beloved and chosen Son from the beginning, 
exercised his agency to say, Father, thy will be done, and the glory be thine forever. He would be our Savior, the Savior of the world. Because of Lucifer's rebellion, a great spiritual conflict ensued. Each of Heavenly Father's children had the opportunity to exercise agency that Heavenly Father had given them. We chose to have faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ, to come unto Him and to follow Him and accept the plan Heavenly Father presented for our sakes. But a third of Heavenly Father's children did not have faith to follow the Savior and chose to follow Lucifer or Satan instead. And God said, Wherefore, because that Satan rebelled against me and sought to destroy the agency of man, which I, the Lord God, had given him, I caused that he should be cast down. Those that followed Satan lost the opportunity to receive a mortal body, live on earth, and progress. Because of the way they used their agency, they lost their agency. Today, the only power Satan and his followers have is the power to tempt and to try us. Their only joy is to make us miserable like unto themselves. Their only happiness comes when we are disobedient to the Lord's commandments. But think of it. In our pre-mortal state, we chose to follow the Savior, Jesus Christ. And because we did, we were allowed to come to earth. I testify that by making the same choice to follow the Savior now, while we are here on earth, we will obtain an even greater blessing in the eternities. But let it be known, we must continue to choose to follow the Savior. Eternity is at stake, and our wise use of agency and our actions essential that we might have eternal life. Throughout his life, our Savior showed us how to use our agency. As a boy in Jerusalem, he deliberately chose to be about his father's business. In his ministry, he obediently chose to do his father's will. In Gethsemane, he chose to suffer all things, not by my will, but by thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening on the cross he chose to live he chose to love his enemies praying father forgive them for they know not what they do and then so that he could finally demonstrate that through his cho choosing and the actions which he took in his life for himself he was left alone and said, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? At last he exercised his agency to act, enduring to the end, until he could say, It is finished. Though he was in all points tempted, like as we are, with every choice and every action, he exercised the agency to be our Savior, to break the chains of sin and death, for us, and by his perfect life, he taught us that when we choose to do the will 
of our Father in heaven. Our agency is preserved, our opportunities increased, and we progress. Evidence that this truth is found throughout the scriptures. Job lost everything he had, yet chose to remain faithful, and he gained the eternal blessings of God. Mary and Joseph chose to follow the warnings of an angel to flee into Egypt, and the life of the Savior was preserved. Joseph Smith chose to follow the instructions of Moroni, and the restoration unfolded as prophesied. Whenever we choose to come unto Christ, take His name upon us, and follow His servants, we progress along the path to eternal life. In our mortal journey, it is helpful to remember that the opposite is also true when we don't keep the commandments and the promptings of the Holy Ghost. Our opportunities are reduced. Our abilities to act and progress are diminished. When Cain took his brother's life because he loved Satan more than God, his spiritual progress was stopped. In my youth, I learned an important lesson about how actions may limit our freedom. One day, my father assigned me to varnish a wooden floor. I made the choice to begin at the door and work my way into the room. When I was almost finished, I realized I had left myself no way to get out. There was no window, no door on the other side. I had literally painted myself into a corner. I had no place to go. I was stuck. Whenever we disobey, we spiritually paint ourselves into a corner and are captive to our choices. Though we are spiritually stuck, there is always a way back. Like repentance turning around, walking across the newly varnished floor means more work, yes, a lot of resanding and refinishing. Returning to the Lord isn't easy, but it is worth it. As we understand the challenge of repenting, we appreciate the blessings of the Holy Ghost to guide our agency and Heavenly Father who gives us commandments and straightens and sustains us in keeping them. We also understand how obedience to commandments ultimately protects our agency. For example, when we hearken to the word of wisdom, we escape the captivity of poor health and addiction to substances that literally rob us of our ability to act for ourselves. As we obey the counsel to avoid to get out of debt, we use our agency and obtain the liberty to use our disposable income for helping and blessing others. When we follow the prophet's counsel to hold family home evening, family prayer, family scripture study, our homes become an incubator for our children's spiritual growth. There we teach them the gospel, bear our testimonies, express our love, and listen as they share their feelings and experiences. By our righteous choices and actions, we liberate them from darkness by increasing their ability to walk in the light. The world teaches many falsehoods about agency. Many think we should eat, drink, and be merry. And if it so be we are guilty, God will beat us with a few stripes, and at last we shall be saved. Others embrace secularism and deny God.
They convinced themselves that no opposition in all things, and therefore whatsoever a man does is no crime. This destroys the wisdom of God and His eternal purposes. Contrary to the world's secular teaching, the scriptures teach us that we do have agency, and a righteous exercise of agency always makes a difference in the opportunities we have in our ability to act upon them and progress eternally. For example, through the prophet Samuel, the Lord gave a clear commandment to King Saul. The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king, said Samuel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the Lord. Go and smite out Amalek and utterly destroy all they have. But Saul did not follow the Lord's commandment. He practiced what I call selective obedience. Relying on his wisdom, he spared the life of King Agag and brought back the best of the sheep and the oxen and other animals. The Lord revealed this to the prophet Samuel and sent him to remove Saul from being king. When the prophet arrived, Saul said, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But the prophet knew otherwise, saying, What meaneth then the bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul excused himself by blaming others, saying they, the people, had kept the animals in order to make sacrifices to the Lord. The prophet's answer was clear. Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken to the commandments of the Lord than the fat of the rams. Finally Saul confessed, saying, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Because Saul did not hearken with exactness, because he chose to be selectively obedient, he lost the opportunity and the agency to be king. My brothers and sisters, are we hearkening with exactness to the voice of the Lord and his prophets? Or like Saul, are we practicing selective obedience and fearing the judgments of men? I acknowledge that all of us make mistakes. The scriptures teach us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For those who find themselves captive to the past, unrighteous choices, stuck in a dark corner, without all the blessings available by the righteous exercise of agency, we love you. Come back. Come out of the dark corner and into the light. Even if you have to walk across the newly varnished floor, it is worth it. Trust that through the Atonement of Christ, all mankind, including you and me, may be saved by the obedience to laws and ordinances of the gospel. As the hour of the Atonement was upon him, the Savior offered his great intercessory prayer and spoke to us, saying, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. 
that they may hold my glory, which thou hast given me. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I bear my special witness that they live. When we exercise our agency in righteousness, we can come to know them, become more like them, and prepare ourselves for that day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is our Savior. May we continue to follow Him and our Eternal Father as we did in the beginning. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The choir just sang, Beautiful Zion, built above. President Monson has asked that I now present the general officers and area 70s of the Church for sustaining vote, after which we shall hear from Elders Robert D. Hales and Quinton L. Cook of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Following their remarks, Bishop Richard C. Edgeley of the presiding bishopric will address us. It is proposed that we sustain Thomas Spencer Monson as prophet, seer, and revelator, and president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Henry Benyon Eyring as first counselor in the First Presidency, and Dieter Frederick Hufdorf as second counselor in the First Presidency. Those in favor may manifest it. Those opposed, if any, may manifest it. It is proposed that we sustain Boyd Kenneth Packer as president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the following as members of that quorum, Boyd K. Packer, L. Tom Perry, Russell M. Nelson, Dallin H. Oakes, M. Russell Ballard, Richard G. Scott, Robert D. Hales, Jeffrey R. Holland, David A. Bednar, Quinton L. Cook, D. Todd Christofferson, and Neil Anderson. Those in favor, please manifest it. Any opposed may so indicate. It is proposed that we sustain the counselors in the First Presidency and the Twelve Apostles as prophets, seers, and revelators. All in favor, please manifest it. Contrary, if there be any, by the same sign. It is proposed that we release Elders Spencer J. Condy, Bruce C. Hafen, Kenneth Johnson, Glenn L. Pace, and Lance B. Wickman as members of the First Quorum of the Seventy and designate them as Emeritus General Authorities. It is also proposed that we release Elders Spencer V. Jones and Wolfgang H. Powell as members of the Second Quorum of the Seventy. Those who wish to join us in expressing gratitude to these brethren for their excellent service, please manifest it. It is proposed that we release Fernando Malando and Jose E. Torres as Area 70s 
Those who wish to join us in expressing our gratitude for their excellent service, please manifest it. It is proposed that we sustain Wenceslau H. Zvek as an Area 70. All in favor, please signify. Any opposed? It is proposed that we sustain the other general authorities, Area 70s, and generally general auxiliary presidencies as presently constituted. Those in favor, please manifest it. Any opposed may manifest it. President Monson, insofar as I have been able to observe, the voting in the conference center has been unanimous. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for your sustaining vote, your faith, devotion, and prayers. We'll now be pleased to hear from Elder Hales. It's remarkable how much we can learn about life by studying nature. For example, scientists can look at the rings of trees and make educated guesses about climate and growing conditions hundreds and even thousands of years ago. One of the things we learn from studying the growth of trees is that during seasons when conditions are ideal, trees grow at a normal rate. However, during seasons where growing conditions are not ideal, trees slow down their growth and devote their energy to the basic elements necessary for survival. At this point, some of you may be thinking, that's all very fine and good, but what does it have to do with flying an airplane? Well, well, let me tell you. <laughs> Have you ever been in an airplane and experienced turbulence? The most common cause of turbulence is a sudden change in air movement causing the aircraft to pitch, yaw, and roll. While planes are built to withstand far greater turbulence than anything, you would encounter on a regular flight, it still may be disconcerting to passengers. What do you suppose pilots do when they encounter turbulence? A student pilot may think that increasing speed is a good strategy because it will get them through the turbulence faster. But that may be the wrong thing to do. Professional pilots understand that there's an optimum turbulence penetration speed that will minimize the negative effects of turbulence. And most of the time, that would mean to reduce your speed. As we all know, the same principle applies also to speed bumps on a road. Therefore, it is good advice to slow down a little, steady the course, and focus on the essentials when experiencing adverse conditions. This is a simple but critical lesson to, lesson to learn. It may seem logical 
when put in terms of trees or turbulence, but it's surprising how easy it is to ignore when it comes to applying these same principles in our own daily lives. When stress levels rise, when distress appears, when tragedy strikes, too often we attempt to keep up the same frantic pace or even accelerate, thinking somehow that the more rushed our pace, the better off we will be. One of the characteristics of modern life seems to be that we are moving at an ever-increasing rate regardless of turbulence or obstacles. Let's be honest, it's rather easy to be busy. We all can think of a list of tasks that will overwhelm our schedule. Some might even think that their self-worth depends on the length of their to-do list. They flood the open spaces in their time with lists of meetings and minutiae, even during times of stress and fatigue. Because they unnecessarily complicate their lives, they often feel increased frustration, diminished joy, and too little sense of meaning in their lives. It is said that any virtue, when taken to an extreme, can become a vice. Overscheduling our days would certainly qualify for this. There comes a point where milestones can become millstones and ambitions albatrosses around our neck. The wise understand and apply the lessons of tree rings and turbulence. They resist the temptation to get caught up in the frantic rush of everyday life. They follow the advice there's more to life than increasing its speed. In short, they focus on the things that matter most. Elder Dallin H. Oaks, in a recent general conference, taught, we have to forego some good things in order to choose others that are better or best because they develop faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and strengthen our families. The search for the best things inevitably leads to the foundational principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The simple and beautiful truths revealed to us by a caring, eternal, and all-knowing Father in heaven. These core doctrines and principles, though simple enough for a child to understand, provide the answers to the most complex questions of life. There is a beauty and clarity that comes from simplicity that we sometimes do not appreciate in our thirst for intricate solutions. For example, it wasn't long after astronauts and cosmonauts orbited the Earth that they realized ballpoint pens would not work in space. And so, some very smart people went to work solving the problem. It took thousands of hours and millions of dollars, but in the end, they developed a pen that would write anywhere, in any temperature, and on nearly any surface. But how did the astronauts and cosmonauts get along until the problem was solved? Well, 
They simply used a pencil. <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci is quoted as saying that simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. When we look at the foundational principles of the plan of happiness, the plan of salvation, we can recognize and appreciate in its plainness and simplicity the elegance and beauty of our Heavenly Father's wisdom. Then, turning our ways to His ways is the beginning of our wisdom. The story is told that the legendary football coach, Vince Lombardi, had a ritual he performed on the first day of training. He would hold up a football, show it to the athletes who had been playing the sports for many years, and say, gentlemen, this is a football. He talked about its size and shape, how it can be kicked, carried, and passed. He took the team out onto the empty field and said, this is a football field. He walked them around, describing the dimensions, the shape, the rules, and how the, games, the game is played. This coach knew that even these experienced players, and indeed the team, could only become great by mastering the fundamentals. They could spend time practicing intricate trick plays. But until they mastered the fundamentals of the game, they would never become a championship team. I think most of us intuitively understand how important the fundamentals are. It is just that we sometimes get distracted by so many things that seem more enticing. Printed material, wide-ranging media sources, Electronic tools and gadgets, all helpful if used properly, can become hurtful diversions or heartless chambers of isolation. Yet amidst the multitude of voices and choices, the humble man of Galilee stands with hands outstretched, waiting. His is a simple message. Come, follow me. And he does not speak with a powerful megaphone, but with a still, small voice. It is so easy for the basic gospel message to get lost amidst the deluge of information that hits us from all sides. The Holy Scriptures and the spoken word of the living prophets give emphasis to the fundamental principles and doctrines of the gospel. The reason we return to these foundational principles, to the pure doctrine, <coughs> is because they are the gateway to truth of profound meaning. <coughs> they are <coughs> the door to experience and to experiences of sublime importance that would otherwise be beyond our capacity to comprehend. These simple basic principles are the key to living in harmony with God and man. 
They are the keys to opening the windows of heaven. They lead us to the peace, joy, and understanding that Heavenly Father has promised to his children who hear and obey him. My dear brothers and sisters, we would do well to slow down a little. Proceed at the optimum speed for our circumstances. Focus on the significant. Lift up our eyes and truly see the things that matter most. Let us be mindful of the foundational precepts our Heavenly Father has given to his children that will establish the basis of a rich and fruitful mortal life with promises of eternal happiness. They will teach us to do all these things in wisdom and order, for it is not requisite that we should run faster than we have strength. But it is expedient that we should be diligent and thereby win the prize. My dear brothers and sisters, diligently doing the things that matter most will lead us to the Savior of the world. This is why we talk of Christ. We rejoice in Christ. We preach of Christ. We prophesy of Christ. That we may know to what source we may look for remission of our sins. In the complexity, confusion, and rush of modern living, this is the more excellent way. So what are the basics? As we turn to our Heavenly Father and seek His wisdom regarding the things that matter most, we learn over and over again the importance of four key relationships with our God, with our families, with our fellow men, and with ourselves. As we evaluate our own lives with a willing mind, we will see where we have drifted from the more excellent way. The eyes of our understanding will be opened, and we will recognize what needs to be done to purify our heart and refocus our life. First, our relationship with God is most sacred and vital. We are His spirit children. He is our Father. He desires our happiness. As we seek Him, as we learn of His Son, Jesus Christ, as we open our hearts to the influence of the Holy Ghost, our lives become more stable and secure. We experience greater peace, joy, and fulfillment as we give our best to live according to God's eternal plan and keep His commandments. We improve our relationship with our Heavenly Father by learning of Him, by communing with Him, by repenting of our sins, and actively following Jesus Christ. For no man cometh unto the Father but by Christ. To strengthen our relationship with God, we need some meaningful time alone with Him, quietly focusing on daily personal prayer and scripture study, always aiming to be worthy of a current temple recommend. These will be some wise investments of our time and efforts to draw closer to our Heavenly Father. Let us heed the psalmist's invitation, 
Be still and know that I'm God. Our second key relationship is with our families. Since no other success can compensate for failure here, we must place high priority on our families. We build deep and loving family relationships by doing simple things together, like family dinner and family home evening, and by just having fun together. In family relationships, love is really spelled T-I-M-E, time. Taking time for each other is the key for harmony at home. We talk with rather than about each other. We learn from each other and we appreciate our differences as well as our commonalities. We establish a divine bond with each other as we approach God together through family prayer, gospel study, and Sunday worship. The third key relationship we have is with our fellow men. We build this relationship one person at a time by being sensitive to the needs of others, serving them and giving of our time and talents. I was deeply impressed by one sister who was burdened with the challenges of age and illness, but decided that although she couldn't do much, she could listen. And so each week, she watched for people who looked troubled or discouraged, and she spent time with them listening. What a blessing she was in the lives of so many people. The fourth key relationship is with ourselves. It may seem odd to think of having a relationship with ourselves, but we do. Some people can't get along with themselves. They criticize and belittle themselves all day long until they begin to hate themselves. May I suggest that you reduce the rush and take a little extra time to get to know yourself better. Walk in nature, watch the sunrise, enjoy God's creations. Ponder the truths of the restored gospel and find out what they mean for you personally. Learn to see yourself as Heavenly Father sees you, as his precious daughter or son with divine potential. Brothers and sisters, let us be wise. Let us turn to the pure doctrinal waters of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us joyfully partake of them in their simplicity and plainness. The heavens are open again. The gospel of Jesus Christ is on earth once more. And its simple truths are a plentiful source of joy. Brothers and sisters, indeed, we have great reason to rejoice. If life in its rushed pace and many stresses have made it difficult for you to feel like rejoicing, then perhaps now is a good time to refocus on what matters most. Strength comes not from frantic activity, but from being settled on a firm foundation of truth and light. It comes from placing our attention and efforts on the basics of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. It comes from paying attention to the divine things that matter most. Let us simplify our lives a little. Let us Make the changes necessary to refocus our lives on the sublime beauty of the simple, humble, 
path of Christian discipleship. The path that leads always toward a life of meaning, gladness, and peace. For this I pray, as I leave you my blessing, in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen.